This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. I'm Sarah Talia. Over the past few years, three new extremist groups have taken a foothold in Western countries. The COVID anti-vax movement, the incel or involuntary celibate movement, and cosmic right organisation QAnon. In this episode, the future of welcomed returning guest Dr. Ben Rich and Dr. Eva Buyulka, two of the co-directors behind the Curtin Extremism Research Network, to learn more about these groups and how they will affect society in the future. The researchers talked about how these groups are emblematic of a growth in social media use, salad bar ideologies and red pill philosophy. They also addressed why it is problematic to brand people from these groups as violent when most are non-violent and discussed what's next for their new network. The episode was hosted by Jessica Morrison in her last remote recording before she went on maternity leave. Now over to Jess. Ben, what are the recent anti-vax, incel and cosmic right movements like QAnon and where have they come from? So these are three roughly movements centred on three ideological projects. In the case of the cosmic right and specifically QAnon, this is a conspiracy theory that has emerged really with the rise of Donald Trump that is focused on this idea that liberal Western democracies in particular are run by this uh, shadowy cabal of elite pedophiles that are sort of in the form of what's called the deep state that are secretly kind of pulling the levers behind, you know, all the decisions of political power and are effectively rendering liberal democracies authoritarian in real practice. And they cite things like the fact that they view Donald Trump as the real president of the United States, that his presidency was stolen. Um, and this has been a, a, a theory that seems to have really started off as almost an in-joke on a particular forum on the internet, but sort of gained the potency and power of its own to the fact that it's now influencing significant uh, political projects in the United States and even washing up to an extent on our shores here down in the Antipodes. In the case of incels, incels are a subgroup of what's termed the manosphere, which is a broad collection of um, uh, groups, websites, Twitter accounts, YouTube channels that are based around this idea that masculinity is in crisis because of essentially third wave feminism and that men need to sort of take their agency back and embrace a traditional masculine way, you know, that sort of puts women back in their place and, and restores the, the balance as they see it. Incels have emerged from this and they essentially see themselves as the losers, the real losers in the kind of what they view as the sexual marketplace, whereby they, uh, you know, they don't have, whether it's the confidence to get a girlfriend or they are physically unable to get a girlfriend because of uh, some kind of evolutionary feature in their morphology. They're very interested in things like phrenology and skull shape. And they are essentially incredibly disenfranchised with the modern dating scene um, and feel like the world's not fair to them and uh, essentially see the world in terms of what they view as 
the Chad Virgin binary, whereby there's a group of men out there who, you know, roughly 20% of the population that get most of the sex, most of the romantic interest at the expense of a larger 80% of men who don't fall into this, you know, sort of elite level of status, whether that's because of their physical build, whether that's because of their acquisition of wealth and confidence. And then we have the anti-vax movement. Now, anti-vax has been around for a long time, uh, you know, emerges, I think, in the early, the late 1980s, early 1990s, with concerns around the way in which certain vaccines can be linked to autism, which came out of a series of very scientifically dubious papers, but has really exploded under the conditions of COVID, where we've seen vaccine mandates emerge across many parts of the world, and the view that this is a form of governmental tyranny, that your bodily autonomy, your bodily sovereignty is being taken away from you, again, for nefarious purposes. And oftentimes you see intersections between these various groups. So QAnoners have a large tendency or a large likelihood to also be anti-vaxxers because those the sources of those belief both come from this general distrust of the state, the government and society. Eva, while these beliefs are quite different, there is some intersection. Could you maybe talk about the rise of red pill philosophy and salad bar ideologies? Yeah, for sure. So red pill philosophy, I mean, I suspect probably as your listeners would be able to gather by now is very much sort of at least for its namesake connected to the Matrix films. So as in the Matrix films, the red pill is this uh, this kind of magical uh, pill that you swallow. And if you take it, you wake up to the sort of hidden truths of the world that you live in versus the blue pill, which if you take, you know, keeps you in dreamland, sort of complicit and unawares. And so red pill really sort of sprung up on the Internet in the early 2000s, um, I think especially like in, uh, on, on Reddit, but then it was sort of very much taken up uh, by the manosphere, but then more increasingly being taken up by QAnon. And even it's been sort of taken up in certain sort of anti-mandate, anti-vax rhetoric to suggest that people are being maybe lied to about things like, the, you know, about COVID, the vaccines and things like that. Salad bar ideologies um, are really, really fascinating, actually, because I think that you could probably argue that something like the red pill is kind of a progenitor of this salad bar of ideology. So salad bar ideologies is a term, I believe it was probably coined around 2020, I think, by the FBI director, Chris Ray, in the sort of sense that we maybe use it in a more sort of general parlance, I, I think you could probably say that salad bar ideologies is where a, a group, say again, something like QAnon, the Manosphere, draw on a number of different beliefs that are non-uniform, very piecemeal aspects of a variety, a plurality of, of, of ideologies that maybe are, are very non-uniform and somewhat incoherent particularly with something sort of like the anti-mandate protests, you're witnessing groups of people sort of identifying a lot of things online that they find fascinating, but then actually sort of going offline, coming to these rallies and having such disparate ideas, protesting for things like freedom, 
But the sort of curiosity that sort of strikes me here is that freedom sort of means something distinct for each and every one of the people that is, that is at the protest. So with a question like, you know, can I talk about the rise of red pill philosophy and um, salad bar ideologies? I think so much of, of the rise of, of these sort of phenomena is really that we are sort of seeing more people atomized, you know, isolated by themselves, attempting, struggling to make sense of, you know, something as sort of as as traumatic as, as a global crisis, a global pandemic. And so I think that people perhaps turn to, you know, try to find some sort of community, look for that online. But of course, if people sort of fall into echo chambers or only find sympathetic responses, if people are maybe not so savvy to the fact that a lot of people, you know, curate a particular kind of identity online and try to get greater engagement from a viewership, this might sort of weigh in on the sorts of channels that they visit and revisit and go back to again and again and again and draw draw out this you know sort of misinformation from. I think there's a reason why we're sort of more and more seeing people use language like, you know, internet brain poisoning or seeing memes like, you know, go outside, touch grass. There's there's a, I think a growing awareness that we 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 can and should if we can get offline occasionally. Look, Ben, some experts have stated that the actions of governments during the pandemic have only helped to further radicalise people with anti-vaccination sentiments and anti-mandate sentiments. What do you think about this and what can we learn to better navigate future crisis events? Well, I I mean, I think, for instance, the McGowan government, a call, they basically said there's a trade-off here. You know, we can push this through, we can add a punitive element to it, or we can, you know, try and do the empathy thing. We can try and figure out what has pushed people down these pathways. And I think, you know, it opted for that, that former condition, that former policy change. And look, I think, you know, we're still in the midst of getting through COVID. We've got the very high vaccination rates. But I think that the challenge, as you intimated, is, you know, what happens in the, the middle to long term? You've, you've, you know, most people are vaccinated at this point, but you've also shown that the government kind of has lived up to some of the criticisms that they've been making against it, that it can act in these quite, you know, authoritarian manner, that it can basically force people to get the jab or, you know, lose their livelihood in many cases. And I think, you know, while this might solve the problem in the short term, the longer term issue is a question of legitimacy, that people increasingly come to view the state in an antagonistic way. What that does in the middle to long term, as I said, is, you know, during times of crisis, when we need our societies to come together, when we need to work together, when we need to have a shared reality, about a particular threat environment is you you basically burn those bridges to a greater extent. And then further on down the line, there is even the, the threat of, you know, potential political violence, although I'm very hesitant to drop the, the T word simply because it's so politicised now, but that is always a challenge that potentially lurks in the backlogs. But I think really it's about, again, building community resilience, building community cohesion, you know, I think we've all experienced someone who is vaccine hesitant in our life, and it is a challenging issue to deal with. But giving them, you know, trying to figure out why they feel that way, like show them a degree of empathy, not necessarily sympathy, but understand what the thought process has led them there and trying to give them off ramps to kind of come back in. And I think in the long term, that's a much more healthy way than slapping mandates in, which while they might act as a sort of band-aid solution in the short term, because let's be realistic, even with 
the mandates, it was only a small number of people in the grand total of the population that were actually going to resist all the way till the end. Um, I think it's much better to try and put social pressure on people to um, adopt these things. And we saw examples of this, you know, in the United States with um, black communities that initially were often quite um, resistant to vaccines. But as one or two members in those communities went off and got those vaccines and then they were empowered to basically talk to those communities to uh, disabuse them of their concerns around uh, the vaccines, you saw gradually that those communities would adopt and un have vaccines um, in a greater degree, greater numbers. And I think that's a much more effective way in the long term that doesn't sort of damage the credibility of the state and its authority in that process. Eva, um, switching here a little, incels and QAnoners in particular are often seen as violent by the public. How does this make it difficult to, say, treat these extremist views and what should we be doing instead? I think that this particular narrative is something that we need to be a little bit cautious about. This obviously isn't to say that there hasn't been violence associated with these groups. There certainly has been. We know, of course, the very troubling, horrible events of the, um, the Isla Vista shootings in 2014. Uh, we know, of course, about the awful Toronto van attack, I think, in 2018. So, of course, these groups have been connected to violence, but I don't think that presenting them unanimously as a violent group is going to be particularly helpful. There's a number of reasons for this. First and foremost, I think that there's perhaps a tendency to sort of simplify what is otherwise a very heterogeneous collection of, um, of understandings that sort of persist within these groups. I'm reminded as well that I think it was in 2020, uh, one of the police, I think it was an assistant police commissioner, referred to you know people in like anti-mandate, anti-vax rallies as, a, you know, I'll paraphrase slightly, as um, bat poop crazy, which again, it's sort of positioning groups of people as you know crazy, as, as, as infinitely unreasonable. And I just, I don't think that these are necessarily very helpful narratives to be presenting a, a public with. The reason for this is, you know, there are obviously a number of efforts to try to sort of reach out and, and help these people and to sort of, you know, help um, de-escalate, you know, people who um, are on, on incel forums. In the UK, for instance, there are current efforts to try to address misogyny in schooling systems as, you know, one part of an effort to deal with, you know, what, what might be called the incel problem. So my last point would really be that in trying to sort of help people at an interpersonal level, be it, you know, if you've got like a kid who you know is on, on these forums or if you've got like parents who you know are maybe going down like, you know, queuing on rabbit holes, I think we're going to have to walk a tightrope in trying to find a bit of a common ground with them to sort of, you know, begin some kind of meaningful communication with them and then just sort of working to actually sort of, you know, unpack some very sort of abstract ideas um, that they may be beholden to. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all sort of job. Um, I don't think you can have a 12-point plan to try to solve it, but I think we need to persist. I think the other thing to mention too is here is to not uh, repeat the mistakes of the past. And one of the things that we see particularly with the incel community, is uh, a process of you know, what we term in international relations securitization, that is the construction of a social issue as a security issue. 
And one of the things I've been very cognizant of in studying um, sort of the manosphere is the way in which you see a kind of portrayal of people who fall into these communities as defined by their potential to commit terrorism, just as we did against Muslims um, a generation ago after 9-11 and ever since then, really. I mean, it hasn't stopped. But what you see is that because of the actions of an extreme minority of people in these communities, and like, you know, it's, it's not even 0.1% of people in these communities that are actually going off and engaging in violence because of their beliefs, you see that the entire community becomes tarnished as a result of that. And I think that the problem is at the end of the day, incels' biggest threat is to themselves. It's from social isolation. It's from feeling either um, from their own perception of self, from their own feelings of inferiority, or from you know some pretty harsh realities that we live in a society where you know aesthetics are a thing that factor into what, someone's success about finding romantic love in many cases. And I think, again, emphasizing the importance of empathy around this is really key to resolving it because I think otherwise there's a term in the community just as there's a red pill there's a black pill and the black pill refers to essentially embracing a sense of hopelessness that there is no way out of this that you just sink down into the mire and the muck and accept your lot in life and I think that in and of itself and the way in which people become susceptible to embracing that is really a, a failing of society and, and we need to be you know, far more proactive in addressing that. You've both spoken about proactive measures and addressing these societal issues. Is it grassroots work that we need to be doing in our communities to nip all of these movements essentially and to help these people? Is that what needs to be done in the future? What I would say is, is, you know, and this is a big part of what we are doing in the research network, is promoting this idea of building community resilience, building community cohesion around these issues, being able to identify them proactively. I mean, we've talked about already the alienating effects of modern technology. And, you know, I think we will look back in 10, 20, 30 years on the current state of social media and the way we engage in social media, much like we, we today look back on cigarettes and smoking, that we knew this was doing a huge amount of harm, but the vested parties, the churn of capital that surrounded it allowed these issues to go unaddressed for a very long time and cause a huge amount of damage to generations. And I think just like that, we will have to start becoming more proactive in addressing these issues, in anticipating these issues, in creating alternatives. And I think it'll come from grassroots organisations, it'll come from civil society, it'll come from government organisations. It has to be a networked and whole of society response. And a big part of that is public education. And that's a big part of what we're focusing on in our group is trying to go out there and identify people, particularly in the WA space, and, you know, engage in education, engage in giving, uh, you know, um, teachers, family members, community leaders, political leaders, business leaders, the kind of tools to both recognise when someone might become vulnerable to this kind of set of issues and also how to perhaps, you know, bring them, you know, back into the comfortable light. A good example, I mean, we've been talking in very broad terms here, in very general terms, how this could, something like this could look like is if we, let, let, let's go back to 
someone who's considered by many scholars to be sort of the first incel mass killer, this uh, gentleman by the name of Elliot Rogers, who committed the 20, was it 11? 2014. 2014 Isla Vista shootings. Now, Elliot didn't engage in this spontaneously. He actually went through a long process of social alienation. And you can read about this. He has a, a manifesto out there. I think it was called My Twisted World or something to that effect. Um, and you can tell just from, he, he details his kind of slow descent into this hateful worldview, this hateful view on women. And you read it, and this is a, a guy who was a young man, I think pretty isolated. He, had a, he was quite estranged from his father. And you read it and you just think, you know, someone had really been looking out for this guy. Someone had, you know, reached out maybe at a crucial juncture, put their hand on their, his arm and, you know, had a chat with him and, and maybe given him some support that might have been averted. Now, it's not going to happen every single time. There will always be failures in such a system, but I still think it's incredibly important that we push towards that and we mobilize resources around that instead of turning a blind eye to it or trying to sort of put it into the space of, you know, for instance, just policing the pointy end, as it's called. Uh, it needs to be a much broader social awareness of this and an awareness that there is a responsibility that society has for this. It's not just, you know, a crazy person going off and doing something and we couldn't have done anything about it. In many cases, we could have if we had been more aware. Where do you both think these movements are heading? Do you think more people will drop them over time or will more people run towards them and have a greater impact on society? Or do you just think new extremist ideologies are going to take their place in the future? I think, unfortunately, as the world gets more chaotic, as we see increasing pressures on things like supply chains, things like climate change, I think the salience of these ideologies will continue to grow. At the end of the day, they are offering an alternative to the current status quo in an environment where I think people are feeling very frustrated, very alienated, they're feeling like things aren't working and suddenly you have a, a group or movement that has an answer to these things. And I think we have to kind of accept that that is the trajectory we're going. And it doesn't mean we're hopeless and it doesn't mean that we can't do anything about it, but we have to not turn a blind eye to it in the way that I think we really have. I think fortunately from a number of conversations I've had with various organizations in and around Perth over the past six months, there is a growing awareness of this both at the top and at the bottom. And I think the, the real trick here to try and come up with effective solutions is it is to really create very proactive and, and creative networks that can get out there and you know use data and evidence and analysis and philosophy and all these things that are perhaps sometimes less tangible but nevertheless have a really important role here to come up with creative ways to deal with it because i think the what we've seen is that the the, the status quo of dealing with these issues just as a purely in brackets counterterrorism issue is not going to work i think ben has made a really important point here that these groups present something of a seeming counter-narrative and something of a sort of a, an alternative to uh, a mainstream. And I think my feeling with these groups and thinking sort of about the, the impact that they may have in the future or like their potential sort of movement into the future, I don't think that these ideas in and of themselves 
necessarily have a lot of draw or necessarily have a lot of pull. I don't think that they're necessarily appealing, but I think that insofar as they act as an alternative, that is in many ways their appeal to have perhaps a, a sort of an edgy counter narrative. I mean, I might interject here. I mean, I think that the other thing to talk about, and this is, you know, the term the cosmic right. I think this is something we're also dealing with in, in our modern kind of world, which is this dearth of kind of, I don't want to use the term mystical, but the meaning side of things. A lot of these movements draw on, you know, things, things that are exciting, things that are edgy, you know, as, as Eva says, you know, they, they pull in these like mystical occluded narratives, you know, occluded knowledge that you are, you know, a small elite. Digital soldiers. Yeah, digital soldiers in a, in a holy conflict or, or some kind of greater cause um, and that you have access to hidden knowledge that, you know, none of these normies do, that, you know, you are part of this exciting fight, this battle against evil in a world where what is evil? We live in ambiguous times where meaning is unfixed, where what a good life is really hasn't paid out. I mean, you know, if you look at, you know, the kind of the, the, the double barrel that young people across the world, but in Australia are staring down of at the moment, you know, like a, a declining Australian dream, you know, it's hard to buy even a house at the moment. So a sense of general decline and a sense in which there's nothing kind of really exciting in the world anymore that, you know, you, that what you define your life as in many ways is about your patterns of consumption. And suddenly an ideology comes along that, you know, tells you about these hidden knowledges and these hidden evil, you know, individuals behind closed doors. And for someone who's, you know, particularly young, looking for meaning, looking for a cause to throw themselves into, that can be incredibly seductive. Uh, and, and even to build on that, I think the thing that is just genuinely fascinating is that it is kind of an, an articulation of a crisis. I, I don't think um, that, that it is sort of any, anything less than that. Because if you believe that you, uh, by taking the red pill, are you know being let in on some hidden covert truth that has just been hidden away from you, then presumably there is some force or agency or group or, or what have you that, that is trying to lie to you. Even, you know, people going down the rabbit hole online with something sort of, you know, becoming sceptical or hesitant about vaccines, for instance, you know, I think a lot of it does start from people's genuine uncertainty and uh, anxiety around something like maybe putting something into their bodies or putting something into their children's bodies, going online, finding maybe what looks like a reputable source that's, you know, maybe presents a dissenting position that sort of says, well, oh yes, vaccines are here, but did you know that ivermectin is also an alternative that according to all of this data and these papers and these statistics has remarkable qualities. But then of course, pursuing that rabbit hole, uh, falling down further with it, the discussion then going on to, well, if the mass media is trying to hide the wonders of something like ivermectin, what else are they trying to hide from you? Is this big pharma just pushing profits? And is this sort of a concern with like, you know, politicians bound up with big pharma trying to push for profits? You know, so just sort of continuing this sort of this chain of, um, of es this escalating anxiety that just sort of pushes the conspiracy and the, the, the fear further. And I think this all comes down to, in many ways, uh, a, a quote that I'm going to butcher, but it, it is something to the effect of rather an evil God than no God at all. And I think when you're able to identify a group 
or an individual that is responsible for all of your life's maladies, your anxieties, um, your senses of unfulfilled desire. It's comforting to at least have an explanation for that rather than, well, shit happens in a modern, you know, complex world. Whether you're optimizing energy consumption or exploring the depths of the oceans, we invite you to work with us to find realistic solutions for your business or industry. Curtin University can provide assistance from product testing and benchmarking to investing in new technologies. You'll have access to specialised facilities and expertise backed by groundbreaking research. To find out more, visit curtin.edu forward slash work with us. How is the Curtin Extremism Research Network different to other research groups in this space? Well, I think one of the ways we have tried to position the network is we try to basically approach the questions from a non-security focus. So we look at them in terms of how they represent social issues, political, economic, class, and we tend to deprioritize the terrorism, the door kicking, the black, you know, balaclava kind of stuff. Because there's a zillion people out there working on that with hot takes on Twitter, you can log in and find it all the time. Another kind of, I think, unique element that we've carved out is just, as I, I sort of alluded to earlier, the diversity of the network. So we have people from education, we have people from psychology, we have people from business and law, uh, we have linguists, we have all sorts of individuals. And our view is that by kind of leveraging these various um, individuals and their specific skill sets and talents and interests, it just gives you a, a higher likelihood of coming up with new, novel, interesting things around these issues that, again, tackle them for the, the multidisciplinary issues that they are. We've uh, been quite active. We had our launch at the start of the year where we had Dr. Ann Ali um, sort of I almost, it was almost like a pass the torch moment uh, where she sort of ushered us into existence, gave the keynote wished us well in our endeavours. I mean, since then, we've been getting a lot of traction with uh, a lot of organisations around Perth interested in seeing how they can cooperate with us. Our focus is not primarily on the kind of ivory tower side of things. Like our view, I think, is generally that research needs to have real world application in this space. And I think being both on the, the West Coast in Australia, but also, you know, sort of on the, the face of the, the Indian Ocean and, and finding those kind of broader networks regionally, I think will also be really important. Well, I think you've sort of answered my next question in terms of what's next for the network. It's really just broadening the network itself and, and, and spreading into the community. Is that, is that really what you're sort of focused on in the next sort of 12 months? Yeah, I mean, we, we've got a few research projects we're working on at the moment. So one of our junior members in the network, Lachlan, um, we've uh, tasked him with ingesting a disgusting amount of Twitch content, watching a particular influencer and how this individual devises grassroots responses to extreme right ideology. You know, the, 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 the classical refer someone who's a potential bad person to a, an established psychology network or counseling network that maybe works in some cases but far more often than not it's about finding someone who someone else respects and basically having that person tell them or sort of walk, walk with them through why maybe that those set of ideas maybe aren't as healthy for them as they think they are maybe it's not good for them so we're trying to figure out sort of 
how can you identify these people you know who are in these positions um, what are the kind of techniques they're using is that something that we can actually proactively do rather than just waiting for it to you know emerge organically um, we also have a book project that we're working on looking at sort of the intersection between fascistic ideas and the incel community and is there a connection there or is is it more again of this kind of salad bar ideology thing and you know how do we sort of identify this I think even um, with with that book in mind as well, one of the things that we're sort of going to be investigating in it is the way by which uh, a group like incels is written about in the mainstream media. So the ways, for instance, that incels are sort of presented either through like a mad, bad sort of binary, either pathologized as sort of, you know, mentally unstable, mentally ill. you know, did they commit their acts um, in part at least because of bad brain chemistry or is it just that there are bad people out there that need to be, you know, punitively addressed and locked up or what have you? And just to sort of plug our other podcast, we just arranged with RTRFM to have a five-episode series looking at the sort of contemporary online far right from various aspects and again engaging in that kind of public education um, around that to try and help people understand these things a bit more effectively and how it relates to them in their lives so a lot of, lot of things going on yeah I was about to say you've got a lot going on in the next little while and we wish you all the luck with it it sounds really exciting thank you both Ben and Eva for coming in today really really fascinating discussion lots to sort of digest there um, And it sounds like the Research Network is doing a fabulous job. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it. And don't forget to subscribe to The Future Of on your favourite podcast app. Bye for now.